Welcome to the Pro Politics Podcast. I'm Zach McCreary. I've been working in politics for the better part of two decades, but at heart, I'm a political junkie who wants to talk to interesting people involved in politics. Today, my guest is Jim Messina. Jim is best known for his role as the 2012 campaign manager of President Obama's successful re-election, but beyond that, he's been a Senate chief of staff, worked in the White House where he helped put together the Obama cabinet and pass the Affordable Care Act. He since started the Messina Group, a full-service consulting group with a who's who of clients from the corporate advocacy and political worlds. I'm very grateful Jim made time to talk today. Jim Messina, tell me how you grew up. I grew up kind of lower class, poor kid uh, in uh, Denver, Colorado till I was eight and then Boise till I was 17 and then finally got to where I would later die in Montana. Tell me a bit about your family. Did you grow up in a political family? No, it was none of those things. Um, you know, I grew up kind of a, you know, there's four kids, single mom who had two jobs. And so, you know, the only thing that was at the dinner table was study and shut the fuck up. Um, and I was the oldest of four. And because my mom worked two jobs, you know, I kind of was sort of the dad. You know, when I was in the fourth grade, I was the campaign manager for Jimmy Carter's presidential race against Ronald Reagan in my Roosevelt Elementary in Boise, Idaho, uh, where we got our asses kicked, unsurprisingly. Um, but my mom still has the paper I wrote, this paper of what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I said I wanted to be either the starting quarterback of the Denver Broncos or the president's campaign manager. And Zach, I was 10. After John Elway fucked me out of the first job, um, I really only had one other job that I ever wanted to be, and that was that was being in politics. How does a kid who doesn't really come from a political family, how did you get the bug? So I was always a reader. I won the first and second and third grade reading competitions for most books read. You know, at night when my mom would work, I'd go to the library, and I would just sit there and read free magazines. And I remember reading just about the 1980 presidential race, and I just was obsessed and then a little bit later, when I was in seventh or eighth grade, I read All the President's Men, and then it was over. I knew I wanted to go to journalism school, which is what I did. I knew I wanted to be in politics. You know, I knew kind of that was where I was going to go. And then my senior year in high school, I had this amazing government teacher who later, weirdly, I would be a colleague. We both would be house chiefs of staff together. And, you know, he was the first one who said to me, you know, you can actually practice this stuff. So I was a delegate in 1988, my senior year in high school for Jesse Jackson. Because it was Idaho and there weren't any Democrats, we pulled an upset and got a bunch of kids elected as Jesse delegates in the Idaho State Convention. And you know, my freshman year in, in Zula um, was 88 general, and I got an internship working for the Dukakis campaign, and it all just happened really quickly. And I just always knew with this weird clarity that I would do politics forever. How does a senior, I think my facts are right here, but how does a, a senior in college end up managing the race of the mayor of his college town? How does that happen? So my sophomore or junior, I took six years to get through college because I left three times to go work on campaigns. I got a scholarship to the legislature in 1991. to 90-day session still to this day of citizen legislators. They have no staff. They get paid $52 a day, Zach. And so they all get interned. 
I uh, was assigned to the majority leader of the state house, chairman of the uh, state tax committee. And because I was a journalism major, the majority leader said, you're going to be my press secretary, which was sort of a fucking joke because I had a mullet, um, an actual mullet. Um, you know, I didn't have a pair of dress shoes. They had to teach me how to wear a tie. But during that session, the majority leader got not one, but two DUIs. And the second one, I literally had to call a press conference and, and have him apologize. And, and I was like on TV and I was just turned 21. Well, I literally called my mom and said, this is the greatest job I've ever had. And then I went and ran legislative races in cow country in eastern Montana. And my final semester, you know, I'd already won a couple of big, I won a state Senate race um, in Billings that no one thought we could win. And so the mayor was in deep trouble and he called and said, you know, I want you to be my campaign manager. And I said, what's well, my final semester? And I had hoped to spend it drunk and naked. Don't want to do this. A good friend of mine said, dude, you're 22, like, go manage a race. And we came from behind and won. And by then, there was like, I don't care if someone had offered me the starting quarterback of the Denver Broncos. All I was ever going to do was campaign. And how did you uh, gravitate toward Democrats? I mean, you say you didn't come from a very political family, you know, a kid growing up in Colorado in the 70s and 80s, you know, pretty Republican oriented, being a kid in Idaho uh, in, in any era is going to be, you know, surrounded by more Republicans and Democrats. Montana may be more of a swing state historically than people might realize, but how did you gravitate toward uh, Democrats? I would su- suspect that a lot of your peers, you might have been an outlier uh, among some of your peer group. I think I was the only Democrat uh, of all my friends. Uh, I think it's started with the anti-nuke stuff. Um, you know, the Idaho nuclear lab was wildly controversial. Going putting nuclear waste across state lines was controversial. Um, that was one of the articles I read about when I was a kid. Uh, and I ended up handing out leaflets. And that one kind of made me, it was my first kind of awakening. I was into campaigns, but I didn't really understand the issues. And then I started reading about this stuff and realized the Democrats were right on that issue and the Republicans were wrong. And then obviously being from a poor family and seeing the kind of effects of, you know, various points we were on food stamps, uh, all those things. And so I, I immediately kind of looked at the two parties and realized which of them was out for the people that I cared about and who were over my family. And can you just give a quick sidebar on the anti-nuke movement? That would be something if you're in your 20s or 30s, maybe, you know, you could be forgiven for not really following, not really understanding that. But that was a pretty a pretty defining debate, a pretty defining issue for a certain generation. Yeah, absolutely. And, you, and people will, you know, not remember these names, but Three Mile Island had happened. This major nuclear contamination uh, on the East Coast. There was, you know, the saber rattling back and forth with the Russians at the time. Fully half of young students thought they were going to be victim of nuclear holocaust. It was a time of people trying to reckon with what had happened, both militarily and whether or not this energy technology would was the right thing. And it became incredibly controversial. In a way, you're right, was sort of lost to modern history, but was incredibly important and certainly woke a poor kid on the wrong side of the tracks in Boise, Idaho up. Well, clearly your your connection, your relationship with Senator Max Baucus was integral in your life, a real inflection point. I'll just sort of lay out for a minute or two, however long you you need. And just can you talk about Max Baucus, how you connect with him and, and what that relationship has, has meant for you? Yeah, when I first got my, you know, I went to the state Democratic Party in 1992 to run legislative races in rural Montana. And this wizened old pro said to me, 
Jimmy, you don't think you work for Max Bacchus, but every dime of the state party is paid for by Max Bacchus, and we all ride for the Bacchus brand, and you better fucking get used to it. Um, you know, Max had kind of single-handedly kept the modern Democratic Party alive, and for a guy who was as moderate as he was and sort of controversial in lefty circles, he was like a kind of staunch Democrat. Growing up in party politics in Montana, Max owned it. One of the things I really wanted to do was go to work for him in D.C. So I was working at the state legislature and my mentor had left the state party executive director and went to D.C. for Max. They had gotten a new chief of staff who was from Nebraska of all places, a future very big Democratic political consultant named Jim Krauts. And Krauts needed an assistant. And they said to him, go to Montana and get someone who knows something about politics because you've never even been to Montana. So he came um, to the state legislature and our friend Jane Murphy, who had been ED and then was his deputy, said, you got to interview Messina. And we had this great uh, session in the basement cafeteria of the Helena State Capitol. And he said, what do you want to be? And I said, the president's campaign manager. And he said, well, you'll never be that. So what do you really want to be? And I said, I'm serious. And he said, well, you know, I need someone who knows about Montana politics. Um, do you want to go to D.C.? But right now you're the chief of staff to the state Senate Democrats. You're going to go as my assistant and answer my phone. And I said, sure. Uh, and that was in March of 1995, right after the Gingrich Revolution. We just lost the House and Senate. And I was like the only new uh, Democratic staffer who had a job when everyone else was getting fired. Flew out in March of 1995, February maybe, and would be associated with Max for the rest of my life. I mean, the next year he was up for a very close re-election that we barely won with under, under 50% of the vote. Uh, and I was the field director for his Senate race. He did this borderline crazy thing where he decided to walk across 713 miles of Montana. And so I staffed a part of it and like drove the van in front of him to like, you know, hand him food and water at this various thing. And he and I ended up having these deep conversations about life and liberty and all of those things. And we ended up becoming really, really, really close. The day I quit to go to Obama uh, was the same day his um, son was, his only child was getting married. And his famous quote from that weekend was, this weekend I'm losing both my sons. Um, and that was kind of our relationship. It was great for me, but didn't really set me up very well to go to war with him on health care in the White House. But he was an incredibly important part of my life. And I still talk to him every few days. But you uh, ran the 2002 Bacchus re-election, famously a very colorful race, colorful in a literal sense, since the libertarian turned his skin blue by taking some sort of goofball uh, snake oil health elixir. So a lot going on in that race. But what I'm maybe most interested in as a tactician is how the Bacchus operation prepared for that race, because to some degree, from afar, it would, it would appear that you almost won that race when filing closed and you kept out a heavyweight Republican. But can you talk a bit about how the Bacchus campaign marshaled its strength early to force the race to shape up in a favorable way? Yeah, we decided to do two things. You know, we're all slave to our history, Zach, and he definitely was in good and bad ways. But in the good ways, you know, as I said earlier, he had barely beaten the lieutenant governor um, six years before in 1996. We won with 49.7 percent of the vote, um, and he wasn't going to have that happen again. So part of it was I was the chief of staff to a member of Congress from New York. Um, he hired me away in June of 01, um, a full 18 months before the election. And we had two theories of the case. Number one, our election day was March 15th, which is the filing deadline. And then two, we were going to 
kind of changed the way Montana politics were done in a kind of very way that we would do in the Obama reelect and try to build a capacity to get more votes out of rural parts of the state than anyone had ever done. He focused on building an incredible financial operation uh, and then as incredible kind of an opposition research operation both to make Max seem difficult to beat, but also to start to you know, define who we wanted as our opponents. Did we think we were going to end up getting a crazy state senator and a guy who would turn himself blue and a Green Party candidate who would die right before the election? No. We definitely tried to build a, a new kind of campaign. And so part of what we did was these things that I came up with called Bacchus Burger Bonanzas. And we would pull into small towns of under 5,000 people. The day before, we would go lit drop the entire town and say, hey, free burger and beer at the park. We have a great country and Western band. Uh, just come say hi to Max. No politics. He wouldn't even talk about politics. He'd just go and shake everyone's hands. We'd have a great band. We'd serve a bunch of beer and burgers and just try to really bond with people in a different way. We use that to build a kind of state-of-the-art voter file and try to figure out what people cared about in ways that hadn't been done in Montana before. Um, so by the time we got to the following year and we were under filing deadline, you know, Mark Roscoe, the popular governor, said, I'd like to be in the Senate, but running against Max Boggess didn't seem like a fun thing to do with the next year of my life. Uh, and then we ended up winning 62-38. Yeah, as I understand it, the, the Baucus office was a clearinghouse, re-elected in 2002, but the Baucus office was a clearinghouse for much of the fight against the 05 Bush plan to start privatizing parts of Social Security coming off the 04 Bush re-election. Bush, uh, understandably, talking about political capital that he had earned uh, due to his re-election. Uh, can you give a sense of that effort and then the part of the plan that the Baucus office you were a part of in stopping uh, that effort coming out of the Bush White House? Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. You know, Max's office, in, I don't think, kind of gets known for this outside of Montana, but at one time, the president's campaign manager, the executive director of the DNC, the executive director of Emily's List, and I think the whatever tie was at the time, the in, independent coordinator of the D-Trip, all were Montanans who had been brought into politics by Max Bacchus. And so that was kind of a really fertile ground. In 2005, after the 02 Bacchus campaign, I'd left for a couple of years to go be Byron Dorgan's chief of staff to get him through the 04 race. I came back as chief of staff to Max, uh, and Harry Reid called and asked me if I would kind of helm the Senate Democrats' campaign against Bush's plan to privatize Social Security and Medicare. Just to be fair, this wasn't just about me being a great operative. They knew if I was running it, Max would be less likely to leave the friendly confines of the tent. One of the first times where you kind of realize this the strategic advantage of the Republicans' ability on messaging. And the reason I say that, Zach, is it was the first time I'd ever been just running a campaign that was against something. And as you know, every Democrat in the country thinks that they can message Democrats better than, than Democrats can. And they always say, why don't Democrats have messages? And part of it is because Republicans are against things and Democrats are for things. As I would later learn in the ACA fight, it's hard to message these big things. But in 2005, it was super fucking easy to go into the House and Senate caucuses I was able to do and say, look, we're going to say two things about Bush's plan and two things only. It cuts the number of seniors who get access to this, and it cuts your, your premiums by a third. 
this is devastating. And that's all we're going to do is say those two things over and over and over and no negotiation. In some ways, we were going to kind of be Republicans. And, you know, a bunch of people wrote articles about it and it kind of became this famous thing because for the first time in a while, Democrats held together. Part of that was Harry Reid. Um, a lot of that was Max Baucus. Some of that was George Bush and his team's arrogance, thinking they'd just gotten reelected and they could go do whatever. I remember when Max called the Bush's chief of staff, Andy Card, and said, hey, I see your first appearance after your reelect is in my state to campaign for this privatizing Social Security, aren't we going to sit down and talk about it? And they said, we just won an election. We're going to do this. So we kind of took the fight to them and were able to defeat what I think was an absolute disastrous of a plan and, and kind of unified Democrats together. And it kind of set up the Senate races for 06 when we would take back the Senate. That wasn't the only issue. You know, obviously, Iraq was a big deal. Bush's approval rating was a big deal. But it was the first issue that kind of said to a whole bunch of people like John Tester and other folks that there were issues you could run with in Bush states that were really popular. It was the beginning of something really great. And I still will remember it as one of the happiest times in my life. And, and you talked about it, Jim, but what is it about Montana? And, and again, many of these people have Bacchus connections, but what is it about Montana that so many talented people have come out of Montana politics, gone on to great heights in politics? Why does Montana over-index in terms of the political talent it produces? You must have a theory. I do. Um, part of it is the ability to, to gain access to both learning and actual practicing very early. If you're growing up in New York politics, in California politics, you're going to be 30 before you get to run a race. You're going to have to spend several cycles Whereas, as you said earlier, I was the press secretary when I was 21. I was the mayor's campaign manager at 23. Not because I was better than anyone else, but I'd run a bunch of races. The other thing is there were, and to this day, there's people stay in Montana because of the quality of life who are world-class operatives, like Dave Hunter, who is a name most people know, but is as talented as anyone in the world, run races all over the place, but stayed in Montana. When Stephanie Shriok announced a couple months ago she was leaving Emily's List, she wasn't leaving Emily's List to go be a lobbyist. She was leaving Emily's List to move home to Montana. People like Gail Stoltz, who'd been the ED of the DSCC and the DNC, you know, she would sit with Dave Hunter when I was like 22, 23 and teach me targeting. You know, Celinda Lake, a prominent pollster who's from Montana, made sure that every month or so she cooked all the Montanans in D.C. dinner to make sure that we had food and you know, all those things. There's a really strong you new know, people who want to see young people in Montana rise and we rise really fast. And the other thing is there's been a real tradition of progressive elected officials like Mike Mansfield, like Pat Williams, like Max, like uh, Steve Bullock, you know, like John Tester, who hired a bunch of Montanans and gave them big roles and allowed them to kind of soar and shine. And some of that stuff just doesn't happen if you're from New York or California. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of a previous episode we had with the Republican consultant, Mike Murphy, who says some of his advice to young people is to get out of D.C. and get into a state capital. Well, let me ask you just a bit about your days on the Hill. We're talking, you know, as you said, mid-90s, late-90s, till we get to the 2008 campaign. And you're, you're bouncing, you're doing some campaigns, you're doing some Hill work. But first of all, I've talked to a lot of political operatives who think they want to work on the Hill. Then they get a little taste of Hill life, and they quickly find out it's not for them. They run back into campaigns and politics. You know, you're, you're different, of course. But what was it about working on the Hill that you took to so well? Zach, I know this sounds fucking terrible, but just power. 
um, you know, I got involved in, the, in politics on issues, on, you know, on anti-nuke stuff, on environmental stuff, on social justice. And I got to the Hill, maybe it's because I went to work for chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, but um, also when I was in the House working for Carol McCarthy, et cetera, I just found out that if you were a Hill staffer, you could get things done very quickly. You could have real legitimate legislative wins that felt like campaigns. Very early in my first year in Max's office, I worked with this, his natural resource staffer who got this huge mine stopped in Montana and used Max's kind of power to do it. And it's still this legendary campaign where he stopped his gold mine near the Yellowstone. You know, years later, I would use those kind of things I had learned to do the largest conservation easement in American history. I realized very early that these were mini campaigns on the Hill and you could actually make real change. I was there when we started the Children's Health Insurance Plan, you know, obviously ACA. It is true most of my friends are either Hill or campaigns, and most people don't go back and forth, but I kind of fell in love with both and refused to believe I had to choose. Part of what I loved about the Hill was just the, the sheer trying to use campaign tactics to pass legislation. I thought that was super cool. And then I had people like Max and Carolyn and Byron Dorgan who would let me run with stuff and weren't too controlling and, you know, said, if you got an idea, go do it. And if you screw up, I'll kill you. And, you know, that's all you want as a young staffer. And you've seen dozens, uh, hundreds of chiefs of staff, you know, you've seen how offices work. You worked for some, you chiefed offices yourself. But what are the Jim Messina rules, the tips to being an effective chief of staff, to running an effective operation for a member? So I love this topic. Um, if I want, ever wanted to write a book, I would want to write it about this. First is all offices are always a reflection of the member. You know, you always realize that your job is to move that member's culture and, and views through, and it's not about you. The second thing is your job is to make the trains run on time. And so your job is to coordinate. You can't make every decision. Your job is to figure out how to make all the various wheels of that office run. You know, that means the really unsexy work of, you know, one of the things we instituted was a senior staff meeting an hour before the senator got in, then half an hour before the senator got in, a meeting with the whole staff, meeting with just the senator. And then we'd have a post meeting to make sure we got his or her wishes done. Um, you know, really staffing it like it was a you know military operation. I had a, a boss, a senator, who said to me, "You got to treat me like a fucking general." At the time, he was yelling at me, but it was a good lesson um, because it's true. You, you need to think about these things and really, you know, do the planning that the members never going to have to do. The other thing is, and this is one of the hardest things: you have to figure out how to explain Washington to a whole bunch of constituents who have an average of two and a half jobs, who think about politics less than five minutes a week. And so really kind of figuring out ways to get things you're doing in Washington understood and accepted by the, the voters is incredibly hard. I did this really fun thing where I did kind of a Q&A with Senator Tester's staff on Friday. And the very first question I got was people who said, it's hard. Everyone just in Montana just wants to ask us questions the press does about DC issues. And we want to talk about the stuff we're doing in the state. And what do you do? And that's the very first thing we talked about when I moved to Washington 26 years ago. And then, you know, being the, an actual constituent services operation, people don't realize this, but, you know, if you have problems with Social Security, if you have problems with immigration, if you have all these things, 
you're going to go to your member and you have to actually build an operation that can deal with those things. And and then last, the, the day before I moved to Washington, one of my mentors, Jim Flashman, said to me, the secret to politics and life, Jim, is, is half gin and half tonic. And I thought it was a drink recipe, but it really is about half fun and half seriousness. And you got to make it fun. And, you know, you're working these ridiculous hours on campaigns and on the Hill. And too often, it's, it just feels like a drudgery. And one of the good things that there have been a tradition since 1975 in Max's office was Fabio, Friday afternoon beer and vibing organization. And every day at 4.30, we would drink heavily in the senator's uh, ante room. Sometimes he'd show up, sometimes he wouldn't. He was usually in the state. But it was a time we could let our hair down, bond as people, too often people think politics has to be all serious and has to be fun too. When I was a chief, I always tried to make it fun. That's a lesson that maybe I never could explain to Rom in the White House. But um, besides that, we tried to have a little fun. And, you know, I've now gone on to help elect 11 presidents and prime ministers around the world. And I don't care what country I'm in, it's it's always difficult to explain why it should be fun. But it's the one thing I think that, you know, politics gets wrong too much. You are a real authority on, on this topic, so I do hope you get around to writing that book. Uh, and, and in working in the Hill on the 90s, the, the 2000s, and, you know, both in the House and the Senate, who were some Republican members that impressed you? I was impressed with Trent Lott. I remember Trent Lott you know, coming in to the Senate majority position and being like no one knew who he really was. The previous guy had to had to leave under under some duress. And I went in again using Max's good name and, and held up uh, the appropriation bill to, to get a provision in there for Montana. And I remember how smoothly Trent Lott dissected me and took me apart and put me right back to earth as he should have. I would not end my career feeling this way, but there was an incredible closeness of between the Grassley and Bacchus operations. And until ACA, I really appreciated um, Chuck Grassley. They were both on the, 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 the ranking members on finance. Yep. And they were they had a meeting with joint staffs every week. And they literally would try every week to do as much bipartisanship um, as they could be. And then I got to the New York delegation as a baby chief of staff. I'd never been a chief of staff for a New York member in Long Island, Carol McCarthy. So I'd never been to fucking Long Island the day I got hired. Um, she sent me to see Al D'Amato's chief of staff was as nice of a human being and started to teach me about what being a chief of staff had meant. And then Peter King a Republican from Long Island who just retired, um, was incredibly important, you know, teaching me about constituent services wasn't about partisanship. You know, we worked very closely with his office on all those local issues because they were just local issues, had nothing to do with partisan politics. You talked about working for Senator Byron Dorgan in his last re-election race in 2004, as well as his chief of staff. He was really prototypical of what uh, they used to call a prairie populist. That was a large part of the Senate not that long ago. You know, Dorgan, Harkin, Daschle, Bob Carey, an earlier generation, Frank Church, McGovern, you, you mentioned Mike Mansfield. Uh, as a son of the American West, can you talk about that strand uh, in our politics, which is not extinct, but it feels like it's sort of at a low tide uh, at this moment? Yeah, you'd have to say maybe John Tester was one of the, the last remaining uh, people. Um, yeah, I mean, that strand of populism has been incredibly important to the American West. And if you look at the history of the American labor movement, the American environmental movement, you know, they were really populist. Populist Republicans or populist Democrats 
Um, but especially in the Democratic Party, the prairie populism was, you know, when I went to the Senate, there were two Democratic senators from South Dakota, two Democratic senators from North Dakota, two from Minnesota, um, one from Montana, and they were all, um, except for Max, prairie populists. I remember going to work for Dorgan, having worked for Max for a long time, and I was like, whoa, the politics are very different here. And it was just a different strain. And, you know, Dorgan was Tom Dassel's best friend in the world and getting to kind of see leadership meetings, which in Max's world, I didn't see. Figuring out how to fight for rural vote and not assuming that all rural people were Republicans. And, you know, that stuff was incredibly important. And is, in my opinion, you know, I think everyone ought to read John Tester's book he published late uh, last year, where he talks about this and talks about how those people inspired him and what it means to be a populist Democrat these days. And, um, and I think, you know, it was incredibly great learnings to me. And, and I'm like you, it's kind of a, it's a nadir of that movement right now, but I don't think it's gone. I think we've just sort of failed to communicate it. Yeah, well, I'm probably the, the one human being who would rather dig deeper into Byron Dorgan. But let me force myself to turn into the 2008 race. By the time 2008 uh, presidential campaign comes around, you'd been on the Hill for a decade plus with periodic sabbaticals for campaigns. But how did it come to pass that you take a job on the Obama campaign? And, and what was that job? You know, I'd kind of talked to both the Clinton and Obama people about whether I was going to go do this. I, I had this stupid rule, and I, I'm not making a joke, it was a stupid rule, that I didn't ever want to do presidential politics because I had read all the books about them, and they all fought each other and trashed each other in books and all those things. And I loved Senate races, and I thought I was above that petty partisan bullshit um, until Pete Rouse called me. Pete Rouse, for those of you who don't know, was in my opinion, the greatest living Senate staffer of the past hundred years, longtime chief of staff to Tom Daschle. And then uh, when Daschle lost, went to work for a freshman senator who'd gotten elected the day before named Barack Obama. Pete was the first person who put together, like, could you run for president? In February or March of 08, he called me and said, hey, would you be interested in talking to us? You know, we think we're going to win the nomination. Um, would you be interested in coming to Chicago? And talking to, to Pluff. And I, you know, nicely said, thank you. I'm not interested. I'm going to go do a Senate race um, again. And Max is up and he's going to loan me to someone. And we're just talking about who. And he called back a couple weeks later and said, hey, Pluff really wants you to come. Pluff may leave. Would you be interested in running the general? Well, that, Zach, is a little different. Um, and so I flew to Indiana and had this half a day with Pluff who, you know, would end up becoming my best friend, finest campaign person I've ever, ever met, and almost an even better human despite his ridiculously terrible choices in um, sports. And so Pluff's um, wife, Olivia, were pregnant with her first one. Obviously, the primary had been brutal, and he was trying to figure out whether he could, could leave. Finally, Obama said, look, hire a national chief of staff to kind of run the day-to-day. -day. You do the big picture stuff, and you stay as campaign manager. And bring someone aboard to worry about all the shit you didn't want to. And so that's kind of what I did. I ran the daily staff meeting in the mornings, um, you know, kind of dealt with the budget of the general, hiring us up from 300 staffers to 2,000 in five months and kind of, you know, doing all those things. Um, to be very clear, David Puff was a campaign manager and in charge. Um, I just kind of got to do the other stuff and turned to be a perfect marriage. And I am forever grateful to Pete and David who... You know, without all this, uh, I would have fucked it up and not taken that job. 
And that 2008 race was very charmed for Obama. I mean, they worked very hard, of course, but hindsight, it feels like the the man in the moment met uh, in 2008. But what is something that the Obama campaign did that maybe wasn't splashy, maybe didn't make headlines that helped make that 2008 campaign so effective? So I started the morning after Hillary dropped out. One of my first jobs was to get back on a plane and leave Chicago, which I just moved to, and fly back to Washington to tell the House and the Senate um, that we were going to give away the voter files, that we were literally going to put the voter files online and give anyone access to the information about their neighbors, um, which was, as Zach knows, wildly controversial. I mean, the amount of screaming I got from members of the United States House and Senate uh, and DNC members, because you know this was our secret sauce, um, and this was a thing that people labored over for a very long time. The Obama campaign believed, I think correctly, that the right way to get more people involved was to ask them to take control of their neighbors, their friends, their family, and do it in a way that we could track. And that one decision, I think, was incredibly important. The wildly controversial decision to forego the campaign finance system and allow individual checks of $23 average was you know, the reason why we had $900 million instead of $85 million. And then just the absolute insistence from the very first day of Barack Obama to his campaign that it was all going to be about the volunteers and all about people around them, that it really was their campaign. It wasn't just talking point. It was a mindset that as a Senate campaign guy, I didn't understand when I first got there. And I was like, what are we doing? And it was exactly the right decision. And I think you're right. You know, people don't realize how important some of those decisions were. And after the election, one of your jobs in the transition was helping flesh out the cabinet. Is there a, a big name now that we are, you know, what, 13 years in, in the rearview mirror? Is is there a, a what if, a big name, something surprising that maybe almost happened or was, was in the air for a while? Well, it's not a surprise because people know what happened, but I have this picture up above my desk that always remind me that, you know, it was always about him and never about me. And I still have this picture today because it's this great picture from backstage. You can tell it's backstage because there's a, a bunch of food carts of food. And it looks like Obama and I are laughing. We're sharing this great moment. But in fact, he is one of the only three times I remember him ever yelling at me, berating me. And it was a moment I had to tell him that we had to withdraw Tom Daschle's nomination. Um, Barack Obama really wanted Tom Daschle to be the healthcare secretary. Tom had finished second to Rom in the chief of staff derby. Um, and it was a very close race. And he knew he wanted to do healthcare and he wanted Daschle. And we had fucked up vetting and had missed um, the, the issue. They ended up having to pull Daschle's nomination. So there there was that. The other funny story was we were trying to decide on Treasury Secretary between Geithner and Summers. And Obama had me take both of them up to see Max Buckus, my former boss, to see you know what Max thought, because Max was going to have to confirm him. And I said to Larry, um, look, Max doesn't like you. You need to shut up and listen to him and don't lecture him. And I timed it. We had a 42-minute meeting where Larry spoke for 33 minutes. And afterwards, um, uh, we were in the elevator and Larry looked at me and goes, I think that went great. And Max called me and I got on the phone with Max saying, what do you think? And he said, I don't think the president should send him to me as his treasury secretary. And I looked at Larry and said, I think you might be the president's economic advisor. Now, in the end, if Barack Obama had picked Larry Summers, Max would have confirmed him. But 
both of those were stories that I was not ready for. I mean, no one can really train you on uh, transitions and anyone who's ever worked on one can tell you how bad they suck. Mike Mansfield used to say about appointments is true. 15 people hate you because you didn't pick them and one person thinks you waited too fucking long to do what you should have done anyway. And that was pretty much my experience on the uh, transition. And, and you were intimately involved in the work to pass the Affordable Care Act, which, as you have already mentioned, ran through the Senate Finance Committee, of which you were very familiar, ran through Senator Baucus. A lot written about the sausage making behind the ACA becoming law. But what is something that you think even well-informed observers don't understand or underappreciate about what went into getting the ACA passed? I think two things. One, there were four and a half times when Rahm Emanuel and I went into the Oval Office of the President to tell him healthcare was dead. And three times Harry Reid called him to tell him healthcare was dead. And I remember the fourth and final time Obama kind of picked up his chair and slammed it back down, which for him was raging emotion, and said, I don't think you two have listened to me. Put everyone in a room and I'll fix it again. Here's a guy who continually was told by the most of the the entire Senate leadership and most of the House leadership and some of his senior staff to go for something smaller, to do something smaller, to take the political win, to play politics. And he just refused. And there's a million reasons why that bill passed. But the number one reason is because Barack Obama wouldn't take no for an answer. You know, the other thing was you realize who talks a good game and who produces. Nancy Pelosi proved to me that she was the shrewdest political operator I'd ever seen. And Chuck Grassley, to this day, lies about something he said to the President of the United States and all of us were in the room. And his legacy will forever be ruined by his just complete caving to the to the right wing of his party. Well, what is the process like for you to land the job as campaign manager of the 2012 reelect, the job that, uh, you know, aside from being uh, under center for, for the Broncos, was the job that you were uh, interested in, you know, from uh, an early age, manager of a presidential campaign that's not a posting on a website. You don't go down to the local branch office and fill out a resume. Uh, how did you get it? Um, well, I don't really know. I mean, it kind of was just assumed. You know, I'd been so close to Pluff. Um, Axe and I were offices that were across from each other. Um, I remember summer of 2010, we were, maybe even the fall, we were out campaigning for Patty Murray. Uh, and we were in Seattle. And they said, hey, the president wants you to ride in the, uh, in the beast with him. So I get in there and he said, Messina, we're getting this thing. We're still pushing healthcare through. Um, we're still doing all this stuff, but people say you should run the reelect. Um, I'm not sure how we would do this without you. Is that really what you want? Or, you know, do you want to stay? And I said, all I want to do is run the reelect. You know, I'd kind of done the things I wanted to do. Healthcare had been incredibly taxing. Passing Don't Ask, Don't Tell was one of the hardest things I'd ever done. Uh, you know, and I knew that's what I wanted to do. And you could kind of tell how difficult it was going to be. What everyone realizes is the reelect for any president's always harder than the first time. It was kind of shaping up to be like that. So that was kind of one conversation with him querying to me is it whether I really wanted it. And then sort of in the fall, Axe pulled me aside and said, so it's yours if you want it, but are you sure that's what you want? Um, and so I went and went out and Pluff and I went for a really, really long drinking session talked about what it would mean and how it would work. And, 
you know, he would go back in and kind of, you know, all those things kind of talked about it. And I realized how badly I wanted it. I remember people in Washington thinking I was crazy because, you know, you just don't give up the White House deputy chief of staff job unless they usually pull you out of there. But again, I've had one of the jobs since I was, you know, in fourth grade. And especially for him, I knew how badly I wanted him to be reelected. And I had a theory of how I could do it. You know, and I already knew how I would do it. You know, even in the very first conversation, Plus said, what would happen? And I said, I'd have Jen O'Malley and Juliana Smoot as my deputies. Here's how we would do this. You, know, you knew the pieces that the 2012 reelect was starting to come together on. And then it was Obama's great idea to do it from Chicago, um, which was the other brilliant thing, because it got us away from the, you know, kind of court bullshit of the White House. The assumption might have been this will just be a D.C., you know, the campaign will be based out of D.C. Yeah, like every other incumbent had. And instead, we were able to have this amazing thing called 2011, where we could just go build all the shit without anyone paying attention to us. And it was an amazingly great thing. And, and one of the interesting things you did after um, uh, you were named manager was to broaden the sources of input beyond just the normal political circles on putting together an organization, running an organization from private sector sources. Can you talk about that process a little bit, how you were thinking of it, maybe a little differently than some other people would have, and and maybe distill some of the important lessons you learned? So first of all, I went back and read every book I get my hands on in the last 100, 100 years of Relax. Second of all, you know, part of the amazing thing about the White House is you get to have access to all these smart people. And in two years there, and I traveled a lot with the president because I was single at the time and I didn't have a family, so I would go on the road with him. And I got to meet a bunch of these people. And as he and I were sort of talking as I was getting ready to leave, he said to me, he's like, there's all these people that want to help. You ought to go pick their brains. And so to your point, Zach, I went and, you know, sat with Steve Jobs right before he passed. Um, Steven Spielberg spent a bunch of time trying to teach me about storytelling and messaging. Eric Schmidt, the chairman of Google, flew to Chicago Bunch to help me learn how to manage. You know, it was going to be the first billion dollar reelect, something no one's ready for, much less me. And so I just went and talked to all of these incredibly smart people, learned about, you know, brand awareness from Anna Wintour, from Vogue, and a bunch of these other people, and just tried to shut up and listen and learn some of these things, and then bring it back and distill it in an Obama way, making sure he was comfortable with all of it. We tried to do that. We were hit or miss with all of it. There were some good things, some bad things, but one of the things I'm most proud of was trying to do something materially different, because if it was going to be the the same campaign as 08, we would have lost. He wasn't the same candidate. You know, we were in, running in the most difficult economy in a long time. We had to, to do this. And someone said to me recently that the reelect continues to look better as time goes on. People realize, A, what a great candidate Romney was, um, and B, just how difficult it was in that economic situation. And you had the Tea Party and kind of the Trumpies kind of coming um, to be what they would later be. And you know, we trailed for most of it. We didn't take the lead in most of the public polling until the summer. Incredibly difficult campaign. And and you've been part of 2008 at a high level, as we've discussed. You manage big, expensive, important U.S. Senate races. You'd seen a lot by then. But once you were in the big chair in 2012, what surprised you the most about being a campaign manager in a presidential race? What weren't you ready for? 
the public scrutiny. One day my mom called me crying and said, I was watching CNN and they say you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> and, you know, because we trailed the first year, the kind of constant carping, um, the constant kind of second guessing, especially because we weren't in DC, people didn't know what we were doing. Um, I was unprepared for the public role because, you know, Zach, I was a staffer, right? Until I got to the White House, I'd never done an interview with press before. I stayed out of that stuff. We press people for that. I worked for members. I didn't have my own profile and I just wasn't ready for that stuff and handled some of it pretty badly. Yeah, that's the stuff that I was just not ready for. And then the constant pressure. You are unaware of the physical damage it does to you. I'm like, I was sick for two months after the election, which, you know, is I've later been told true of a bunch of my fellow Dems and Republicans who've run presidential campaigns, because you just sort of end up, I spent the entire last month just begging for it to be over. A huge honor will be the biggest honor of my life. But I, I would say 2008 was fun. 2012 was a fucking grind. And as you say, that race was very competitive throughout. You know, I remember early on in the cycle, Nate Silver, who had been very bullish on Obama in 2008, but Nate Silver making Obama a slight underdog uh, due to the economic fundamentals, some of the wrong track numbers. Famously, Romney's campaign thought they were going to win until the numbers started coming in that night. But is there a moment that you look back on a strategic decision the Obama campaign made that you look back on as an inflection point when a race that could have gone either way broke your way? Um, I think our decision to go out and try to frame the race, give the Kansas speech, put it on the economic issue was the right thing. You know, every once a month, Bill Clinton would call me in the middle of the night and say in his amazing voice, you know, Jim, all presidential campaigns are always an economic referendum on the future. And then when Romney did the 47% comment, we just, you know, dove right in, you know, went after it. I think those things were incredibly important, you know, steering into the economic stuff. I mean, we tested a hundred different ways and you know this because you've seen the polling on it, but in the end, the simple graph of the economic numbers by month ended up being the most persuasive thing. And we tested a hundred different ways to talk about the economy. Who would have fucking known a graph would have worked after we lost the first debate worse than anyone had ever lost a debate. The president coming out the next day, immediately taking responsibility for it, making a joke about how bad he was and kind of owning it and be going back into fight was incredibly uh, important. All of those were really big. Um, my favorite piece of memorabilia from the eight Obama years, to your point about Nate Silver, Nate Silver's prediction you were talking about is a New York Times magazine piece he wrote. And the cover was a picture of the president it said, is Obama toast? And it said he had a 32% chance to win re-election. And my favorite piece of memorabilia is that blown up with a note from the president saying, hey, Messina, thanks for not making me toast. It is a constant reminder that all numbers are good to know, but all numbers aren't right. Who are some of maybe the unsung heroes and names that maybe were less prominent then? Maybe they're prominent now, maybe they're not. But some of the unsung heroes of that Obama 2012 campaign. Um, obviously, General Malley, who would later go on to run Biden. You know, my deputy, um, incredibly important. Um, Juliana and Rufus put together, and Matthew put together a billion dollars. Um, well, Mr. Master Monaco was as good as anyone I had ever seen at making the trains run on time. You know, it was the first beginning of, you know, Joe Biden shedding his reputation as not being disciplined, because in the entire 2012 campaign, you can't name one major uh, kind of foul up and in. In 2020, when everyone was like, oh, he's going to make big mistakes, I kept saying, 
he's going to make a couple because they all do, but you can't name me one thing he did wrong in 2012. Um, so you kind of saw some of that. Um, Tara Corrigan, who was a young staffer in the campaign, is now the COO of my company. You started to see how she was going to be a major player in her own right um, someday. Some of our state directors uh, were incredibly good. Uh, and, and very big players. Johannes Abraham, who ended up running part of the, the uh, building of government for the president and now is in the White House for Biden, was a young, incredibly talented uh, political staffer. You started to see how he, at that tender age, would someday be a major player. Our, our woman, Liz Jarvis Sheehan, who was our research director, who's now probably the most powerful communicator in Silicon Valley, has worked for Uber and uh, Tesla, and now she runs DoorDash. Um, you could see how even then she was going to be way more. Could I have predicted she'd be the queen of Silicon Valley? No, um, but she's the new tech person, and you could see how talented she was even then. But you could have done a lot of things after the 2012 victory. Could have gone back to the White House. Could have gone and camped out, you know, just you know, inside of numerous corporations or institutions. But before we talk about the Messina Group, tell me how you were thinking about that process. Um, I knew I didn't want to go back in because I'd kind of done everything I had wanted to do, and so I knew I wanted to do something different. And I kind of talked to Axe and Pluff, and Axe had started Axelrod Strategies. Pluff had started Pluff Strategies. Um, and they said, you know, just go do stuff you want to do and relax because you're going to be incredibly tired and sick, which turned out to be incredibly true. Um, I knew I wanted to do a foreign race because being, you know, I didn't get to leave the country until I was 29, I think. I was just poor and never left America. And I knew I wanted to try politics somewhere else. And I knew I kind of wanted to do other things. So I thought, all right, I'll start a company and have one or two people. I didn't think it would later have offices around the world and um, all that stuff. But I, I knew I wanted to try to do some of the Obama campaign stuff in foreign lands. And people should go to the Messina Group website. It's really a who's who of a client list of political, international, corporate, institutional. But can you give an example of, of a project, a client, something you've done at the Messina Group, or maybe just something your, your team has done that you think encompasses what you do and the role you can play? You know, we want to be the middle of helping kind of bring re real world campaign tactics to some of these incredibly big public policy fights. You know, we were incredibly proud to be a major force in defending Obamacare. Um, we've helped around the world establish some of the largest international and national uh, conservation and national parks, helping uh, protect the environment. You know, being involved uh, in the tech world with some of the biggest tech fights, trying to explain uh, around the world what American tech companies are doing and why they're doing it. Um, all of those things, and you know, we have these rules, we have these 21 rules act about what we want to do. And the number one rule is no assholes. Um, and the number 21 rule is have fun. And it kind of goes, it kind of goes to back to stuff you and I were talking about that I learned as a young staffer. We want to do good work. We want to have fun doing it and do things that can make us proud. You mentioned envisioning this initially, maybe this is a one or two person operation. Now it's you know a, a, a much larger than that and offices on multiple continents. But what have you learned about running a business, starting a business that you wish you'd have known from the beginning? Take a fucking accounting class. <laughs> you know, 
the, the, you need to hire business people to run it. I talked about Tara Corgan earlier, who's now uh, our COO and kind of runs day-to-day stuff and has a Duke MBA and actually understands that stuff. You know, someone said to me recently, there's lots of political people who start companies, but not many of them succeed because they're sort of fun campaign things, but they're not businesses. And what you realize is you have to have a business, you have to have budgets and you have to have revenue and and you have to have forward projections and you actually have to pay people's health insurance and do all those things, no matter what campaign cycle you're in or no matter, you know, good or bad or who's in the White House. And a lot of our kind of contemporaries in the Obama world kind of went away during Trump world because it was hard for Democrats. And our kind of international and tech exposure allowed us to have other ways to do things. Um, that was really helpful and it's just the business side of it. And there was no sort of learning that in my campaign slash Hill world. And that's one thing I wish I would have taken some more business classes. You obviously have a, a strong eye for talent, uh, but what have you learned about building a team, finding the right people? I mean, and this goes back, this can go back to a, a race reelecting a mayor of Missoula. It can go back to, you know, what you do now at the Messina Group. But what have you learned about building a team and finding the right people for, for an effort you're putting together? Look, that that experience matters way less than sort of commitment and talent. And, you know, you can teach people skills, but to have people that are willing to work hard, that are willing to really go after it, that want to understand that it's more than a job. Because you don't go to work at, in democratic politics or at TMG if, if you just want a job. You go to work there because you want to be part of something bigger. And you need people who are willing to realize it's more of a, a life and finding people who fit the culture of the organization. Like, you know, if you went to one of our staff meetings, you know, we probably talk as much about sports and music and politics as we do business. Um, we certainly cuss more than most Fortune um, 500 companies. You know, it's just a different culture. And it's a culture that, you know, we're growing and learning and, you know, we definitely don't get right. and. We're always trying to get it better, but it is a place where you can go and and get to go and work on some of the biggest issues and biggest campaigns around the world um, and figuring it out. And, I, and that's just my favorite part is I still every day love going to work. Well, just a couple other macro questions as we close here. I'm sure you're asked frequently, probably on a daily basis, but what is your advice to the next generation of people in politics? Someone maybe still in school, someone earlier in their career, uh, what should that person be doing some practical things to be preparing for a career in politics? Yeah, several things. First of all, um, get experience while you're still in school. Go get internships, take summers off, take a semester off and go work on a campaign. Um, You know, I would work on campaigns and I get internship credits and my student loans would pay for that. And, um, you know, as we talked earlier, it took me forever to get through school. I don't have a graduate degree. No one ever asked me about that shit. Um, I just went and got experience. Second of all, um, goes to what you said earlier, Zach, I can't remember who said it to you, but not going to Washington at the beginning is probably smart. Go to a state capital, go where you can rise quickly, go get experience, go work on campaigns. I just had this young, really talented 21-year-old graduate. She said, I want to go work in Washington. I'm like, not right now, you don't. What you want to do right now is go work on a legislative race in New Jersey or Virginia, because that's in November and you can go get skills right now and then figure out what's going on for the next cycle. Just go do it. Don't, you know, as much as I love talking to political science majors, and that's a great experience, and I have one of those degrees too, 
it's way more important to just go get practical experience. The other thing is, you know, I always had this theory of life that I was going to be the first person in the office every morning and the last person to leave. And I was going to kind of outwork all of my other campaign people when I was young. Um, and then the third is we have this rule at TMG called janitor and president, which means I don't care if you're the president's campaign manager or, or you know, first-time person. You'll go do any job. If it needs to get a mailing done, go help get the mailing done. If you need to put up yard signs, go put up fucking yard signs. Like just none of us are above any of that stuff. And part of what I love about campaigns is people realize that. And the other thing is, you know, I think it's important to politics is glamorous. Yes. But it's also incredibly difficult and it's up to all of us. And, you know, in your world, they're trying to figure out what's wrong with polling and what's wrong with all that stuff. And I think a lot of people have taken some really deep dives about figuring out what they got wrong and really being adherent to the data continuing to learn as you go along. I've run a presidential campaign. I'm one of the only people who've got to do that. There's people now that know more about some of this stuff than I do because they're out there practicing it. And so continuing to, you know, really doing the lifelong learning thing we talk about um, is really true. And there's really, none of us are ever done. And we all kind of, you know, there's people way younger than us I was slacking today with Tara, our COO, about one of our digital people. And I said, Jesus Christ, she knows so much more than the rest of us. And I don't think she's, I don't know how old she is, but it certainly doesn't have a three in it. Probably doesn't have a two and a five in it. Because, um, you know, she's been out there practicing in these, these presidential and prime minister races for us for four years. And she's done it in different languages. She's done it in different continents. And so she's just gonna have stuff to teach us, kind of getting your ego aside and saying, how can I learn? Super, super important. And this is a question I borrowed from The Economist, Tyler Cowen, but to paraphrase him, you know, he might uh, reference the Jim Messina production function, meaning there's a lot of smart people out there, a lot of people who work hard, but Jim, what's made you different? What do you think is unique about you that you've been able to be so successful in what you've done? I know you're not gonna believe me, but I really think it's coming from Montana. I really got the experience before anyone else did. I found mentors who were willing to give me a shot. I have people who to this day make sure I'm okay and make sure that, you know, everything's okay and they're finding the next generation of Jimasinos. You know, like there just is something to be said from being from a place where you have a whole system that is designed to go find the next generation. And the rest of it, yeah, I worked hard and you know. I probably still work harder than most everyone, but except for my colleagues at TMG, they work harder than I do. Um, but, you know, I really, I say this every single day. I'm so fucking lucky to be from Montana. And well, let's end on on a recommendation. And, it, and, and this can be uh, comfort food. It doesn't have to be brain food. But what's something, a book, a TV program, a movie, a recipe, a product, something you've gotten into recently, something you've discovered recently that you'd recommend people give a try? Two things. One, the best album of the year so far is The Girl in Red. It came out last week. Taylor Swift tweeted about it today. It is by far the best album I've heard all year, Girl in Red. Uh, go to Spotify and download that. Second, I'm addicted to this thing called The Blinkist. The Blinkist is a 15-minute audio kind of explanation of a bunch of different books. And so sitting on the Peloton or the treadmill, you can go through two or three different books. I try to go through five or six books a week from leadership to math and science to stuff that I would never need to know about um, and just learn about these things. 99 bucks a year. And I probably do 10 to 15 books a month now. 
um, and just try to expand my horizons a little bit for a hundred bucks, uh, go download the Blinkist. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Jim. I really appreciate you giving me some of your afternoon here. Learned a lot. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Zach. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Pro Politics Podcast. Please subscribe so you can access each episode first thing every Tuesday morning. And if you're so inclined, leave a rating and a short review on your podcast app to help more people find this podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates on upcoming guests. Thanks for listening.